This is Reconsidering, the podcast that explores how to make a living while making a life, or something we like to call the alchemy of satisfaction. I'm Meredith Black. Shanti Bryan was going about her day when she received a phone call from her husband that would change everything. Shanti was a criminal defense attorney, and now there was a criminal investigation starting into the actions that potentially took place within her own husband's company. Her husband needed a lawyer, and now her family was experiencing what so many of her clients had faced, jail time and the family being torn apart. This was a moment of reflection, a time to reconsider. While she knew her husband was innocent and she knew that many of her clients were innocent, what could she do to make an impact at a larger level than simply defending clients one by one? Shanti stepped back at being an attorney, started a nonprofit organization called Fog Break Justice, and wrote a book called Almost Innocent. We are here today to talk to her about her journey and her life's purpose and what she has had to reconsider along the way. After this quick break, join Aaron, Bob, and me, Meredith Black, to chat with Shanti on Reconsidering. Over the past very difficult year, many people have asked themselves, how can I use my skills and my talents to help out and have a meaningful impact? U.S. Digital Response is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that connects volunteer technologists with governments to help meet the critical needs of the public. Already, more than 7,000 people have raised their hands to volunteer their time and their skills. And they've helped more than 200 communities in 36 states and territories across the U.S. address some of the challenges related to elections, unemployment benefits, food security, COVID vaccinations, and so much more. There is work to be done and impact to be made. Sound interesting? Sign up to volunteer and learn more at usdigitalresponse.org. That's usdigitalresponse.org. I'm Shanti Bright Bryan. I am an attorney, an advocate. I'm an activist for criminal justice reform. I'm a writer and an author. Paper or plastic? Paper. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Library or coffee shop? Coffee shop. Read or write? Write. Journal or blog? Both, but journal. Bailey. Newspaper or magazine? Mm, Newspaper. Newspaper or book? Book. Dictionary or encyclopedia? Mm, Dictionary. The Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution? Constitution, for sure. George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln, but both real rough there. (laughs) John Kennedy or Lyndon Baines Johnson? Oh, Johnson, I guess. Eleanor Roosevelt or Jackie Kennedy? Eleanor. Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Sandra Day O'Connor? RBG, for sure. Pelosi or AOC? Oh, I can't choose. I'm a feminist. Both, both and right there. Nice. Reagan or Thatcher? Oh, gosh. I guess Thatcher. Putin or she? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. These just get harder and harder and harder, don't they? Oh, I don't know. I said both and, so now I'm going to say neither. Can I do that? Sure. Loved or feared? Loved. Beauty or wisdom? 
wisdom. And poetry or prose? Poetry. Okay, nice. <laughs> they start off pretty easy. That paper yeah. and plastic, everybody's yeah. like, oh, this is nothing. This and is then, good. And then and it then just sort, like, sort of grinds you down, man. Oh, man. Bob gets really excited about these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shanti, you have quite the interesting background. And I'm so excited to talk with you today about this. To start, you have a law degree from Stanford. You've taught at Berkeley. You've also worked in the world of criminal defense prior to starting a nonprofit. What was it about criminal defense that drew you in, and more specifically, helping convicted inmates with the appeals process and getting them released from prison? I always wanted to do what we called public interest law. I thought about doing employment discrimination cases. I worked for a disability rights organization. I thought there was something, though, particularly compelling about people in the criminal justice system, their stories. I've always been very attracted to compelling human (laughs) dramas. So, for example, one summer in law school, I was working at San Quentin, well, at the prison law office, and I was helping a man who the prison system said was married, and yet he was not married and he wanted to get married. I did help him figure that out and get married. And so there was something just so human about that. There's something about people convicted of crimes, not just defending against criminal charges, but actually already convicted and in prison that in a way I thought were the the most neglected, the most unseen, the most unheard people in our society. And that's what fascinated me and really drew me to that part of the law, as opposed to just such boring, big legal cases where there's really no humanity there. This type of work, it's so visible, the service to others, the potential service. Even if you're defending someone in a case and you lose. And in your book that you talk about, oftentimes that happens. You can still be a support for a person in their time of need. You just said that you feel drawn to this kind of human drama that plays out. How do you balance that feeling of this is mission-driven work? It's sort of like a higher calling of devoting your life's energy to that. But the emotional expense, the fatigue that comes with doing this type of work? It's very tricky. It's very tricky to do that. I, for many years, despite the losses, really the system is set up on appeal for us to lose. So despite the losses, I found a lot of meaning and reward in talking to my clients, learning their stories, telling their stories to really important people right? Judges on the Ninth Circuit are well-known, influential, smart people. And so I found a lot of meaning and reward in telling my clients stories, getting to know them and their families. And yet at the same time, it was very challenging. It was very emotionally draining 
to do that work. I got a real sense of purpose and identity and mission. And at the same time, it was very challenging and hard. And I eventually did have to somewhat take a break from that. It got too much (laughs) at a certain point. What's that feel like to walk away to take that break, even though you know that your spirit and your body probably needs that break to recharge? What's the feeling that you have in stepping away from that type of hard work? I guess I felt that it was, at first, it was going to be like a sabbatical. Maybe I just was telling myself that, but it felt good and right to take a break. But it got to a point where that felt like I had to do that. And there were many clients that I stayed connected to, and I I still am connected to, and end up writing about them and their stories in my book. So I didn't feel like I was completely walking away. And I I still am driven to make the criminal justice system more fair and more just and more humane. And so I have my other work related to that, that I could still find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in. I want to go back to this notion where you kind of said that you were drawn to a certain type of law involving these kinds of issues, like drawn to, I wonder if we could explore that a little bit. Like, what does that mean? Like, it seems like you're coming to all this from a certain moral perspective on justice, you know, and that you've seen some injustice and you feel this deep need to go to extreme levels of self-sacrifice. I mean, really extreme levels of self-sacrifice to try to make a difference here. Like, where do you think that comes from? It's a good question. I talk about this a lot with my partner at Break, one of my partners, was also a criminal defense attorney. And now we're doing similar work in fog break with education and consulting. And we talk about this a lot. Why and how? I can't say exactly. I grew up in a family with quite a few disabilities, mental illness, physical disabilities. My other side of my family is Native Americans. I'm a member of the Muscogee Creek tribe. So there's a certain otherness there. There's a certain sense of I'm partly part of many communities that have been unseen and unheard. And so those perhaps come together in some sense of a need for fairness and justice. And I think I am an extreme empath. Maybe you're just born like that, but I just, I have empathy in abundance, really. Every single client I have convicted of murder, convicted of rape, convicted of armed robbery, I can find some personal connection with that person and I can empathize with that person. There's not one client where I have not been able to do that. Yeah, that connection to ancestors who have been so profoundly wronged, I have to imagine is a just such a deep wellspring of energy and emotion. I could I can definitely see where that would drive you. Yeah, and ignored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a sense of voice that, you know, drove my work in the criminal justice system, but drives my work as a writer also. Just the importance, just the basic humanity in having a voice. That definitely comes out in your book, Almost Innocent, right? And I think 
The one thing I found really interesting is that you start the book with your own personal experience about what's going on in your life and what was happening now. And for those people who haven't maybe read the book or are going to read the book, Shanti talks about the day that she's just kind of going about her normal day. She's, you know, obviously a criminal defense attorney. Her husband is an ex-NFL player. He's starting a successful company in the Bay Area. She gets a phone call from him and he's like, I think I need a criminal defense attorney. And so, you know, there's this moment where you've been defending others and now it's literally come close to home and you're starting to think, you know, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to reconsider in my life? Or or what do I need to do to just move forward day to day and not, you know, have the kids be panicking about this? And I think you starting the book with your own personal experience and then going into the nine stories of your clients is really interesting because it makes you kind of fall into their situation, right? Maybe not eye for eye, but you definitely start to build an empathy in terms of what these people are going through, whether they're innocent or not, right? And so in the book, how did you decide to go about talking about these specific cases and why? I chose the nine clients for different reasons. Some of them were legal victories. Some had a story that I thought a lot of people could relate to, a middle-aged woman and lawyer who gets convicted of signing a document involved with a homeowners association dispute. There's people convicted of rape. There's people convicted of receiving stolen property. So it's a wide variety of clients. It's a wide variety of levels of guilt and innocence. So one of the ideas is that guilt and innocence, like good and bad, like us and them, is a spectrum. And I really wanted to show different levels or different areas of that spectrum. So I chose those for different reasons, but to show how we each have our individual journey, but we're so much alike, really right? We're all making mistakes all the time, basically. We're all trying to figure it out. Whether we like to admit it or not, that's a different story. That is the human story, right? Right. In the book, there's a passage that struck me. You said, in my work, I witness hope and resilience. I see gratitude and self-awareness, but mostly I lose and my clients lose. Can you talk to us about those positive traits and how they manifest in your clients, in you? Like, what are those lessons that you take on for yourself from serving those clients? And conversely, like in those situations of loss, how do people navigate that loss with grace? Well, to answer the last question first, not everyone does navigate it with grace. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes it takes years and years and years to come to terms with what we've done, (laughs) to come to terms with those mistakes and how we've hurt others. The first question was about resilience. So I personally just had to be resilient because of the loss, because of the regularity (laughs) and frequency an expectation of loss. So that in itself created resilience. But to see them, to be on this journey with them, 
was an amazing lesson. I mean, I had a client who did not have a high school education, was a father of four, and got sentenced to four life sentences plus 30 years. Like, how do you face that? How do you face that? How do you keep going on, which he did, like handwritten motions to courts trying to get them to address his very legitimate legal concerns, you know? He had ultimately a legal basis for all of his motions and he eventually came to me after years and years and years found me through the courts. And it's an overwhelming lesson in the capacity for human resilience. But everyone in prison has that. I mean, if you think about the young single mom I represented that's in my book, she was offered six months in jail for her involvement in a robbery, and she ended up with seven years. So if you think about seven years, I guess that doesn't seem like a lot. But then in the context of my husband's investigation, or, you know, I challenge everyone, I challenge you to think about going to prison for six months, going to prison for one month, just the utter fear, it was almost paralyzing, really. And so to witness that and to like be on the journey with people going through that, really, it was an incredible lesson for me. Do you set boundaries with yourself? Like, how, like I mean, like, I, I mean, it must be so hard, right? I mean, because you're maybe the one person in these people's lives that are giving them hope. How do you set boundaries and how do you take a step back and focus on yourself when you're dealing with such tough struggles? That's such a good question. And something I, to be honest, I'm working on as a person. I think the nature of an appellate practice has more limits in it. Most of my clients are in prison. Mostly we communicate either by email or by written letters. And so that naturally creates space. Like most can't just call me. And I think that really, to be honest, I I didn't do very good with boundaries. And that's what led to a real sense of overwhelm and eventually the sabbatical, which turned into the career pivot. So saying I need to take a break from this was a major boundary that maybe took me too long to get to, but I'm glad I I did it. It's something I still work on all the time. In some of our other shows, we've talked about transitions, and we've usually talked about it in these, I think what I now think of as relatively benign situations of transitioning in careers, (laughs) you know, but you've seen people as they've transitioned from civilian life to prison life, and then some the other way around. And I've just, you know, what's your observations of how people process that? You mentioned just a minute ago, like, that it's frightening, the prospect of going into this unknown environment. But I I have to imagine that going either direction is, I can't imagine that emotionally what it must be like for those people. I think that's right. I think, right, if you think about transitioning from your job as a marketing person for this company to a marketing person for that company, like that seems (laughs) stressful. 
or moving from, you know, my condo to my new house, like moving's a stressful situation. I don't think you can underscore how hard it is to go into prison, but then to come out of prison is very, very hard too. I mean, the system is set up again for failure for people coming out. It requires an incredible amount of insight, support, a lot of support, family support, personal support, whatever kind of group support they can find. I mean, just like us, right? I mean, I think COVID showed us all like we have to put our support systems in place to make it through these kinds of transitions. And that takes a lot of attention and care. So yeah, we're like them and they're like us. <laughs> what do you think we're to make of the the whole concept of a criminal justice system when it, when it does feel like in so many cases, these people are born into like incredibly challenging circumstances. And for me, it brings this whole question of kind of free will. Like, again, they, they arrive in this world in these incredibly challenging circumstances, and we expect them to behave in a certain way that we've defined as society. And when they behave outside those boundaries, we stick them in prison and then somehow expect them to transition back. It's just an impossible situation. I don't know if I have a question there. I'm just sort of, sort of curious. Like, God, like, how did we, how did we get here? Well, it's... <laughs> It's systemic racism, it's poverty, it's polarization, it's the us-them sort of addiction to the dichotomy. Because many people, yes, are born into situations where criminality maybe seems inevitable. And you and I are making mistakes all the time, right? I'm going to even suggest that you probably have committed crimes in your life <laughs> or gotten real close anyway. So why do we get away with it? Why do we not have to have those consequences? I mean, everyone should be asking themselves that all the time. It's a privilege that you and I have, that our mistakes are not criminalized. Just you know, very generally speaking, but, you know, the kind of mistakes I make as a, as a woman, as a woman that's perceived as white, as a, a woman that is educated and financially stable, like my mistakes really just aren't criminalized to the extent that others are. It's tough to navigate. I'm the father of two African-American boys, and we have this conversation all the time where, you know, I talk about my experience as a young white man growing up in the Midwest and things that I was able to do. And then I have to explain to my children, like, hey, when you're playing in the neighborhood, you can't run through someone's backyard. That's not going to be a safe thing to do. There's this inherent imbalance in the system and, and culture and society in the United States in particular, and especially the past year, but I think for many much longer, there is this injustice fatigue of like, this is an injustice, there's another injustice, there's another another injustice. And it seems like it's never ending. And have a lot of conversations with friends and family, conversations in the barbershop about it. And there's this sense of like, it's not going to change, it's not going to be different. How do you personally think about 
injustice fatigue and navigating that in your career and in your personal life? There's two things I want to say about that. One, there is actually something called injustice fatigue or, you know, chronic stress due to working in the criminal justice system. So there actually was a study, and I think it was Rutgers University that did a study on criminal defense attorneys about this intense psychological demands of working in this punitive system that punish those that are the most disadvantaged and the chronic stress that comes from working in a system like that. So that's something that is actually <laughs> official. And I, I did experience that when I read that study, I had a profound sense of like, oh, someone's labeling my experience. This is a thing. This was not something that just was happening to me. So in a way to have that label on it legitimize those feelings I was having. And yet there's something larger maybe you're talking about, which is this sense of you watch the news and you, you can't stop seeing injustice. Every day. Every single day. Yeah. And how do we deal with that psychologically as people and as a society? And I would say the people that can turn that off, that's a privilege that's a privilege to be able to look away. I can recognize my own privilege from for being able to take that sabbatical when I had to take it. I mean, that's an incredible luxury I had that my clients didn't have, that perhaps your sons don't have the opportunity to let those thoughts go for today if they're walking out in public, for instance. So I hope that, you know, we can find resilience as a country, as a society to keep facing it instead of walking away or, or, or taking a sabbatical from the issue. That's my hope. Talk to us about that sabbatical that you took. Where were you? What were you doing when you realized, hey, you know what? I'm going to press the reset button and try something different. And then what happened next? <laughs> well, it came when my husband, the investigation of my husband's company started. And at the same time, pretty much the same time, I lost two cases that I thought I was going to win, despite what I knew was true about the system. And so I said, okay, this is it. I need a break. And what I did was I started writing that was one of the things I did in the sabbatical was I have to process this. What is happening? How did I end up in this situation? And what got me here? And what's my role? That was one of the important things I was trying to figure out. What is my role in this massive churning system of inhumanity that leads to horrible, catastrophic results for most people involved. Here I am playing my little role, and I really needed to look at that and think about that. I also started teaching just because the opportunity came up, and that seemed very positive. 
as an appellate lawyer, I was always reacting. I was always coming in at the end. I was always sort of just, yeah, reactive to what had already happened. So teaching seemed so positive and so hopeful. And so I was doing both of those things at the same time, the teaching and the writing during the sabbatical before it really turned into a decision to pivot and still work in the criminal justice system, but not go back to the relentless losses and fatigue of appellate practice. So now you've helped start Fog Break. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So Fog Break, the idea originally was in my appellate practice, if you think about the life of a criminal case ending in the U.S. Supreme Court, I was right down there at the end, right around the corner from the end. And the very beginning, the very first interaction essentially is a police stop, a traffic stop or a stop on the sidewalk. And our theory was if you could make that interaction more fair, more just, less biased, you could have an impact on the whole entire rest of the system because bias, racial bias particularly, is compounded at every stage of the system. Every person you're interacting with, the police officer, the prosecutor, the judge, the jury, the probation officer. And so the focus of our work really was to reduce bias and increase fairness in that interaction. Since then, though, we've really expanded and we work with prosecutors, judges. We have a project right now diversifying juries in Alameda County. We've expanded our work, but it's essentially the same to work with criminal justice professionals to make every interaction more fair to increase trust, to reduce um, fairness and increase trust and create more equitable outcomes. It's been quite fulfilling. So it's sort of the merger of my criminal justice work with my teaching. And it's been quite a great experience. That's a really profound observation. And I want to make sure that I'm understanding it correctly. I think what you just said is that we can all observe profound levels of racial injustice and bias in normal civil society in just our day-to-day interactions. And if I heard you correctly, you're saying that your observation and experience being close to the criminal justice system is that whatever we're observing in normal society is actually amplified as you get through and you move through these different layers of the criminal justice system. Absolutely. At every stage, when you add more bias, you get a more unfair result. That's how we can see the profound disparity in who we incarcerate versus who's committing crimes. I'm an incrementalist. I'm a lawyer still. You know, I'm not a abolitionist. I'm not an anarchist. So I, I do believe in making small incremental changes at the right points with the right people that are holding the discretion and the power, like that could make a significant change, I believe. What you've experienced, what you've seen, you still seem kind of intensely hopeful 
and committed to this idea that I'm now sort of questioning in my own head, this notion that justice is obtainable. Justice is a rather abstract concept. I'm not worldly enough to know if it's sort of a uniquely Western concept. I certainly don't think of it as being something that I really think of as being part of the natural world. It does seem a little man-made. I'm sort of questioning that as a, you know, as a likely goal. Well, I would say as a complex society, generally we need rules. And so rules, though, are not divorced from people and biases. And the U.S. is a country founded on racism, really. So this idea of white supremacy essentially is baked in to our country's fabric. And so in that way, I am not always super optimistic. And yet, you're right, I do continue to think that with enough incremental change, it could get better. How about that? It could get better. <laughs> are we going to make, are we going to find true equity, true justice? I, I don't really know. But I, I do think we can be better. We can do better. I think that for myself, I think that for all of us. And as an appellate attorney, I found victories in small things. And same here, I find victories in small things. I think that as a country, we're talking about reparations. What white people talked about reparations before a couple years ago? So I think that that's progress to me. Rematriation of indigenous lands, like people are talking about that. That's hopeful for me. That's an interesting concept of hope. There's just this belief that things could get better, that we could do better. Like, I think that's sort of maybe the essence of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you talk a fair bit about your childhood and some of the the challenges that you experienced growing up. And I think for so many people, those traumas or challenges that we experience in those formative years, they just can reverberate through life. And there comes a point at which we can either A, let those messages that they create, those behaviors they shape in our lives continue to propel us forward, maybe not on the right path, or we can say, you know, that was a thing that happened and I can somehow understand that and move on. Could you talk a bit about how you personally have navigated those reverberations of your childhood? Therapy? <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I mean, <laughs> period, therapy, period. I'm doing better in the last couple of years with therapy plus. So meditation, journaling, practices that remind me to stay in the present, to stay focused, to stay positive, but mostly therapy, I'd say. I found it interesting in in the closing part of your book where you quoted at length the letter from David Tuggle, one of your clients, and just to quote it briefly, said, I learned it's my fault. If I'd been doing the right things, I wouldn't have been doing the wrong things. And it was interesting that here was somebody who, you know, that was able to process all this injustice by trying to take some accountability and responsibility for it. It's, you know, my own journaling. I know that's a lot of what that journey's been about in the process of growing and maturing is trying to find a balance between 
personal responsibility and, and sort of knowing that all this random stuff happened to you that wasn't your fault, but you still have to find some way of owning it, I think, just as a, as a way of kind of moving forward and finding maybe your own sense of justice in it all. That was a much better answer than therapy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I've done my fair share of therapy as well. I wouldn't have gotten there without therapy. So, <laughs> And I love that you quote David Tuggle, right? I mean, he's in prison forever, essentially. Mm-hmm. And look at the insight he had. He did personal work for all those years in prison. Mm-hmm. He is constantly in a state of self-reflection and taking responsibility. And that's a lesson for all of us, right? Is look at yourself first. Yeah. And and like you now, he's he's taking that that knowledge and he's imparting it and teaching others in the environment that he's in. You know, as you talk to people as they evolve through their professional careers and into the later stage of their life, it's you know, it, it is the common path that we eventually become teachers. That's right. And I think it's a way of, maybe it is a way of trying to hold on to hope, right? It's a way of manufacturing hope. Because when you're working with younger people, it's it, it does give you the sense that things are going to get better. Yeah. And helping others. I mean, that I would assume has been a path that a lot of your guests have eventually found themselves on, which is that's how we reconcile our past. That's how we find fulfillment and meaning, I think, is eventually we find it through helping others in whatever way we can do. And that's another thing, a practice I have in addition to therapy and meditation and journaling is reaching out to someone every day, helping someone every day. What have I done for someone else today? It looks different every day, maybe, but it's a process I go through to ask myself and make sure that I am doing that. That is powerful. It's very common for people to ask, you know, what would your current self say to your younger self? We like to flip that around a little bit. So I want you to just kind of take a moment and to bring forward into your head 25-year-old Shanti, you know, and really try to make her as real as possible and try to imagine her. And I want you to imagine her talking to Shanti today. What advice would 25-year-old Shanti have for Shanti today? Tricky question. I think she would say, damn, you've done awesome. I think she would say, enjoy. Look around. Look what you've done. Look at your family. Look at your book. Look at your body of work. Look at these relationships you've had all these years. Like, enjoy it. I think she would admire me for sort of becoming the woman that she hoped she could get it together to become. Well, that's awesome. I I hope Shanti today feels that. I I do. I try to feel that. I try to feel that, yeah. Shanti, where can people go learn more about Fog Break in your book? fogbreakjustice.com is our website and shantibryan.com is where you can find out about Almost Innocent. You can buy it pretty much anywhere. Bookshop.org though is how you can buy it through a local bookstore. So I recommend that. That's the way to do it. Yeah. 
I want to say thank you for being here where by here means on the podcast and with us, but I just mean in general, in life, on planet. planet Earth, like right here, right now. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. It's really special. Thank you guys for having me. It was great to get to know you. That was an incredible conversation. That was. It really makes you think about life a little bit differently. Yeah. Just a completely different lens. I think the one thing I was thinking about that really resonated was when she said, well, yeah, you could go from a marketing job to a marketing job. But when you're going from, you know, outside prison, inside prison, you know, the perspective's a little bit differently. And going from inside prison to out of prison again is even more different. For me, I think we just take for granted the support systems that we have. Absolutely. You know, we know people who are in our industry or who we can ask questions to if we're like floundering in a job. Whereas when you're leaving prison and you don't have that support system, where do you go? What do you do? Yeah. I think it's easy to walk through life and just kind of take a lot of things for granted, what we have going for us. In fact, that exercise of putting yourself in the position of someone going into prison or leaving prison made me think about that stoic methodology, Bob. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the negative visualization. Yeah. A negative visualization. Yeah. Do you know a little bit about that? Yeah. So the idea is, you know, we often begin to take it granted for the things in our lives, our family, our jobs, whatever, and we get frustrated with them. And so you do this visualization where you imagine your life without them. And having done it a couple of times, I can assure you, you only want to do it for like a minute or two because it gets way too overwhelming really quickly. But if you really sit and meditate on the reality of, okay, well, I, I don't like my job right now, but what would it feel like if I really didn't have this job? And I didn't see those people every day and I didn't have this income and this place to be. And when you pop out of it, you have a very different appreciation for the thing that you were formerly taking for granted. What were some takeaways for you, Bob, from Shanti's perspective? You know, I think reading the book and hearing her talk, I'm just puzzling through this whole notion of justice and the abstract concept of it. And I was thinking about her lightning round questions and how she was so clear about the Constitution versus the Declaration. And, you know, the Constitution is a set of laws. And when I asked her about the concept of justice, she said something about complex societies have to have rules, which is really what the Constitution is. And it just got me thinking like, wow, it's, injustice is almost an artifact of the notion of having laws. We perhaps have to accept that there is going to be some injustice yeah. because we can never apply the laws with 100% parity, but we should strive to. And those are abstractions and kind of easy to think about in a theoretical way. The downstream effects and the reality of that is a completely different matter. As you could tell in my voice, I was gobsmacked seems a little inappropriate, but maybe is the best word I can come up with. Just I knew what she was saying about the amplification of racism as you move through the system. I knew that was true, but I don't think I had ever really sat with that before. And I'm not really sure I've completely internalized it yet because what I see just happening in the day-to-day -day world of my own privileged life, I see a lot of injustice. And to think that it gets worse once you move into the courtroom which I've somehow been bought into the idea that that's supposed to be where justice reigns, to think that it gets more unjust as you move through the system, or at least, you know, that was her experience of it for sure. 
that's a rather overwhelming thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was st- struck by how self-reflection or just like the reflective process played a role in her life, how that plays a role. Like when you go to prison, you've got nothing but time to you know sit and reflect, but how powerful a tool that can be for change in one's life, especially in points of complete uncertainty. So she talked about taking that sabbatical. You know, she's going through her own personal trauma of her husband confronting the legal system through his business, not clear about her role. There's a lot that just wasn't clear at that point. And then feeling that fatigue of her work over and over again of, you know, dealing with injustice and, you know, just dealing with just straight up human sadness, families torn apart, taking a pause, making some space, and then investing yourself in journaling, meditation. She talked about therapy, lots of different methods for reflecting to find what's next. I think the other thing is that she continues to choose a positive route. You know, she could have stopped once she had some difficult cases, she could have stopped, you know, once a situation with her husband being investigated happened, but she continues to choose over and over to keep fighting and keep working on the injustice and on the system. And I think the one thing that I took away was she chooses to help somebody every day. And that's not something that I think a lot of people choose to do or think about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And The fact that she wakes up every morning and falls asleep thinking about somebody that she's helped every day. I mean, if the rest of the world could do that, imagine where we would be. Yeah. Start with yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was really moved by her dedication to the concept of hope. And I think that hope, thinking that things could be better, continuing to believe things could be better, it seems to me that that's really at the heart of reconsidering anything. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you don't have hope, you're not reconsidering. Reconsidering is created by Meredith Blackbrandt, Bob Baxley, and Aaron Walter, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed the episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, We'd be grateful if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. It'll help others discover the show. Until next time, remember life like the seasons is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in.